Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Oh, come on. I know it's hot, but, you know, it's Ohio, right? We, we often jump from February to August. That's just the way it is around here. So let's do it again. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Much gooder. Okay, now, um, a couple things. One, as soon as Andrew announced that, somebody came up and bought a $5 bill, so now our child is fully funded. So um, there we go. Oh, and Dad refuses to pass a hat. I mean, come on. Um, uh, Mom and Dad are in Mexico for a couple weeks, so you're stuck with me um, for a couple weeks. I'm sorry if I appear a bit frazzled, but... I've had like six cups of coffee this morning, and then on top of that, despite the fact that mom's supposed to be laying on a beach and dad's supposed to be in front of a TV watching CNBC, which is what he does all day, they're like texting me every 15 minutes. You did this, didn't you? You did this, didn't you? You made sure this was done, didn't you? I'm like, be on vacation. <laughs> I mean, they're 80 and 78. They work 60 hours a week for no pay. It's like, okay, you've earned it. Relax, all right? So it's just, oh boy, but anyway. So today, um, we're wrapping up our series on King David. And it's amazing to me, I remember when um, I first read the Bible through for the first time. That was 1997 when I first became a Christian at 25. And, and I remember think, getting kind of weirded out because I read through the Old Testament. I'm like, wow, David's kind of a jerk, you know, I mean, and, and, and then I get through, you get into the prophets, and then you get into the New Testament, and he's held up as like this ideal king. And I'm like, what is that about? And so why does the Bible constantly say that David is the ideal king? And why did Israelites want another king like David, given all the things that he did that he screwed up? Well, that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. But, you know, before I get there, it's amazing to me how fascinated we are here we are, you know, we've been a free people here in America, praise God, since, you know, basically since 1789 when we finally got our Constitution ratified and elected George Washington as the, as the first president. But then, like, over the last month, it's amazing how many Americans were, like, completely fascinated by the royals and the royal wedding, right? I mean, it, it, people absolutely fascinated. By, and we still use this term, king and queen and all this other kind of stuff. I won't be too mean to you Cleveland fans because I know you're still hurting, but a buddy of mine after uh, Steph Curry in game two sunk nine threes, a buddy of mine that I went to seminary with um, tweeted out something, and, and here's the gist of it. If you don't know, from about 1517 to about 1980, the best-selling Bible in the world was the King James Bible. But then in 1980, another Bible began to outsell it. It was the NIV, which many of you have. I have right up here. It's been the best-selling Bible since for the last, you know, 38 years. And so he, he tweeted out, he said, you know, what does, you know, Steph Curry and the NIV have in common? They make everyone forget about King James. Um, <laughs> oh, come on. That was clever. You have to admit, even if you don't like it, that was clever. Um, 
We're fascinated by royalty. But the thing is this, there's a reason why, you know, Americans rose up in 1776 against royalty. It's because you need to understand something. Today, the royals are not what royalty has been in the past for centuries, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. If you were a king, you had absolute power life and death power over anyone in your kingdom, and no one could question you. A few examples. Ivan the Terrible. Tsar, which means king in Russia. That's Ivan. Happy-looking guy, right? Um, Ivan the Terrible was in church one day. This is what one of my history professors told me. I was a history undergrad, and one of my history professors told me that one day Ivan was in church and somebody kept sneezing or coughing, and it did something that just annoyed him. So he got up in the middle of the service, grabbed a spear, speared the guy in the pews, threw him down dead, looked up the priest and said, continue. You know what the priest did? He continued because he didn't want to be next. And that was not, nobody questioned it. He can do what he wants. Now, if you don't know anything about Ivan, how about this guy? King Herod somebody you know about in your Bible. Now, Herod technically was not a king as we know it because Herod still had to answer to Caesar. Caesar was the Roman term for king, and Caesars often had almost unlimited power as well. But Caesar made a deal with Herod. He said, look, he said, if you keep those troublesome Jews in line, no more rebellions in Israel, because they rebelled a lot, said, if you just keep them under control, you do what you want. And Herod did. If you've read the Gospels, you know he slaughtered children. He, he, he went so far then as to even have two of his own sons killed. He began to hear rumors that maybe two of his sons were kind of thinking that the throne looked like a good place, and daddy's getting kind of old, so maybe we need to move him out. So he ordered his own children killed. One of them, according to rumor, was drowned in a, in, a, in a fountain, and Herod watched it be done. And no one questioned it. And Caesar didn't even question it. When, when it came back to Caesar, he kind of laughed and said, my goodness, it's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's kid. Royalty is not now what it was. Now they're just figureheads. If the queen mum, what they call her, dies, and Prince Charles becomes king... He can't look at somebody who's irritated and say, off with his head. I mean, he can say it, but nobody's going to do anything about it because that's not really what a king has been. Now, we go to the story of David. David is anointed king. He has to wait many years before he truly becomes king of Israel. And when he becomes king, in the eyes of the people, as a king, he has absolute Power. Power over life and death over everyone. But here's something interesting about David. When I began to dig in deep, what I discovered was, despite David's flaws, he had some things that set him apart. For example, I had an Old Testament professor in seminary, John Willis. And and John Willis, a brilliant, brilliant man, also a very humble and, and, and gentle man. And For years, he would come in and he would lecture on the Old Testament. He had memorized the Old Testament in Hebrew. 
he would walk in and lecture, for example, on the book of Isaiah, and he would quote the book of Isaiah in Hebrew and English without a Bible. See, it got to the point where we students were so intimidated, we went to him and said, Dr. Willis, please, even if you're not looking at it, bring in a Bible and open it just so we don't feel so intimidated. And so he started to do that. He'd come in, and he'd open his Bible, and he'd sit there, and he'd lecture. And he'd always do this, because he was a tough grader, even though he was a gentle man. He would say, you're going to get mad at me, but remember, and he did. He carried around a jar of cookies. And about halfway through the class, he'd say, okay, time for a cookie. And he used to say, you can't be too mad at me if I'm giving you cookies. And so get halfway through, and he says, okay, cookie time. And he took it, and everybody went to go get a cookie. And so I was walking up to get a cookie, too. And I'm walking up there, and I look over his podium, and his Bible's open, but it's upside down. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Brain like this. And so Dr. Willis is the one who taught me this. So don't take this from me. This is coming from him. And this is in your bulletin if you want to remember. He said, here's the thing you need to remember when reading through the Old Testament. English translations often say that David calls himself king. But in fact, in Hebrew, David never referred to himself as king. The Hebrew word for king is malak. The Hebrew word for prince is nagid. Guess what David called himself? Nagid, prince. David never referred to himself as king. He always referred to himself as prince. Why? Here's why. If you go back to 1 Samuel... Israel did not always have a human king. When Samuel the prophet was getting old, the people came to Samuel, and they'd always gone to Samuel for advice, and he was kind of the representative for God. He spoke for God. More on that in a minute. And the people of Israel go to Samuel, and they say, Samuel, you're getting old, which I'm sure you love to hear, and said, we need a new leader. And by the way, your kids stink, so it can't be them. So we want a king. And Samuel says, let me go talk to God. So he goes to God and says, God, I'm sorry. I, you know, I tried to tell him, he did. Samuel goes, you want a king? Don't you know what that means? You're placing your lives in the hands of one human being. He can take a tenth of everything you've got. He can send you off to war. He can have you killed. He can tax you. He can do all that stuff. Why would you want to do that? And they said, nope, we don't care. We want a king. And so he goes to God and says, God, what am I to do? And God says, Samuel, don't worry. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me as king. In Israel up until then, everyone viewed God as king and everyone else as his servants. And that's the way it was. Israel rejected God as king. David did not. David continued to refer to God as king and himself as under God as prince. And that's one of the reasons why David is set apart as a good king. In fact, studying this stuff, this is another story that always kind of puzzled me. There's this story in uh, 2 Samuel 6. David is like, okay, he's, 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 he's united the kingdom. He's done exactly what Joshua failed to do, Samson failed to do, all the judges failed to do. He's united the kingdom. Everything's good. But he says, the Ark of the Covenant, if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, how many of you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's, that's what we're talking about, that thing. It's, it's a gold box, and inside of it are, is Aaron's staff, 
if you remember the Old Testament, or at least if you've seen the Charlton Heston movie, whatever, and the Ten Commandments, and those are in the ark. And the ark represented the presence of God, the holy presence of the Lord on earth. And so the ark is off in a tent, and a family is taking care of it, and David says, this is not right. Let's bring the ark to the capital city where all the people can come and worship and know that the visible representation of God is there. And so, typically, this is how it would have worked. If it had been Pharaoh in Egypt doing this, if it had been a king in one of the Greek city-states or something like that, here's how it would have gone down. The king would have gotten on a big white horse. He would have put fine robes on. He'd have been perfumed, all that kind of stuff. And he'd have rode in on the horse, and the ark would have been behind him. And the message was, that's important, but I'm more important. But when David brings the ark into Jerusalem, he does not ride a horse. He does not ride a donkey. He does not have fine clothes on. He does not have perfume on. He's got his undies on. And he's dancing in front of the ark. I remember reading it for the first time, going, what's that about? Why is he dancing in his underwear in front of the ark? Was he drunk? And then I dug into it. No, 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 no. Here's what David was doing. And this is why David's wife gets so mad at me. If you've read the story, you know, his wife, Michael, after he's done dancing in his underwear in front of the ark, she goes, why would you do that? You're a king. Kings don't do that. One, kings don't dance. Two, kings don't go out in their undies. You have humiliated yourself. And David basically says, that's the point. My point is, that ark is more important than me. And I will humble myself in front of that, and I will dance and worship in front of that, because that is the representation of the true king, not me. Are you starting to see where I'm going on this? Let's take a look, in fact. Here, one other thing. Typically, a king in, in ancient times would never pray to God himself because kings saw themselves as gods anyway. So why would one god pray to another god? So what they typically would do is if you were Pharaoh in Egypt, you would call the priests and say, I want this. So go to the gods and ask them for what I want. And the priest would scurry off, and they'd sit there and please give the Pharaoh what he wants, or he's going to kill us, you know, da, da, da. David doesn't do that. 2 Samuel 7, 18 through 29, here is what David does. Look at the prayer of David. Now, this is in the NIV. This is in English. I'm going to kind of correct this. Then Prince David went in and sat before the Lord. The Lord, by the way, means king. Sat before the king. Now, sitting by a king meant going like this. He is going in, humiliating himself, again, humbling himself. Who am I, sovereign king? Sovereign means absolute ruler. Who am I, absolute ruler and king? What is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough, in your sight, absolute ruler and king, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your slave. That says servant, it should be rendered slave. And this decree absolute ruler and king is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your slave, absolute ruler and king. 
for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your slave. How great you are, absolute ruler and king. There is no one like you. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on the earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, King God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your slave and his house. Please do as you promised so that your name will be great forever. Now, the reason he says so your name will be great forever is that he's taken a shepherd boy, the runt of the litter, as we learned in men's Bible study, if you've been going there with Pat Apel, a harp player. How many times do you look at a harp player out in the field and go, there's a mighty warrior right there? But God did. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty, the King Almighty, is God over Israel. And the house of your slave David will be established in your sight. King Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your slave, saying, I will build a house for you. So your slave has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Absolute ruler and king, you are God. Your contract is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your slave. Now be pleased to bless the house of your slave that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, absolute ruler and king, have spoken, and with your blessing the house of your slave will be blessed forever. Do you see the difference between David and other kings? Do you see it? Saul liked to refer to himself as king. Not David. David says, God is king. I am but his slave, his servant. Now, I say all that to say why David is marked as and lifted up as a great king. But we all know David was not perfect. He failed as a husband. When he did all that business with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, he cheated on his wives, he put them on the run, and their children were killed as a result. He failed as a husband. He failed as a father. It's not hard to read through, you know, 2 Samuel and Chronicles and see that David spoiled his kids, especially Absalom. The story of Absalom is is, is horrific if you're a parent. Here's Absalom. He's a chip off the old block. David was a good-looking dude. Absalom's a good-looking dude. Now, back then, long hair was valued because nutrition was poor. And so if you had long hair, that means you were strong and you had protein and you were eating a lot and all that kind of stuff. And they said Absalom had really long hair, like 80s hair metal hair. Like think Motley Crue 1985 hair, that kind of hair. And Absalom, after this whole thing goes down, his sister is sexually assaulted by one of his brothers... And so Satan starts to whisper in Absalom's ear, don't you see how the ladies look at you? Don't you see how strong you are? Daddy's getting old. Maybe it's time for somebody else on the throne. And civil war breaks out. 
and Absalom is killed. He failed as a father, and he failed as a king. Now, this story is important. If you've never read it, you should. In 2 Samuel 24, there's this story. Always, this again, was a story that befuddled me when I first read it. David conducts a census. You know what a census is, right? We do it every 10 years here, right? Somebody knocks on your door. How many people you got living there? I guess you could tell them 20 and they believe you. I don't know. But you say, how many people you got? You know, and they say, okay. Now, we do a census here in America every 10 years because the Constitution says we're supposed to. The reason we do a census every 10 years is because the number of congressional districts a state gets is based on your population. And so they, they say, okay, you got this many people in this area, that'll be a congressional district, that'll be, and you either gain or lose congressional districts based upon your census. That's why we do it, the primary reason we do it. That's not why you conducted a census in the ancient world. There were no congressional districts. There is no constitution. So that's not why they did census. The reason you would do a census is to find out how many fighting men do I have. If I have to go to war, how many ready and able soldiers do I have? And the reason that ticked God off and told David, you have done wrong, is because God is saying, David, I do not want you to rely on your military strength. I want you to rely on me. Are you tracking? Does that make sense? God is saying, it doesn't matter how many soldiers you have. If I send my angels in front of you, you're going to win, bub. What are you doing? You're not trusting me. That's the reason it was a sin for him to conduct the census. That's why the Old Testament law says, don't conduct a census. Just trust in God. But then David's response, like his response to Nathan, is interesting. David's response is, God says, okay, you've got two choices here now that you've screwed up. You can pick your punishment. Number one, you can either be handed over to your enemies for a time, or you can be handed over into the hands of God. David says, put me in the hands of God, for he is merciful. Not in the hands of men. Now, we'll come back to that. When he is confronted by, well, about his sin with Bathsheba, you need to understand this. Going back to what an ancient king was, you remember, David's walking, as dad preached, da- David's walking on the rooftops one night when he can't sleep. He looks over, he sees Bathsheba, a beautiful woman taking a bath. That was not a, a, abnormal, by the way. That's where women took baths because it was hot and all that kind of stuff. They would go at night up, into, up onto the roofs and take baths. That was normal, which makes you wonder what David was doing cruising around up there. And David sees her and he takes her. And then she becomes pregnant, even though her husband's off fighting. So he has her husband killed, and he thinks he's covered it up. And then Nathan the prophet, and this took a lot of guts, Nathan the prophet walks up to David, and he says, you've all probably heard the story. David, there's this guy. Man, he's got this huge farm. He's got all these sheep. He's got everything he needs. And then there's this poor little farmer. He has this one sheep. That's all he has. And the rich man took the poor man's sheep from him. Now, notice this. Those of you who want to blame Bathsheba, it does not say the sheep ran away. 
It says the rich man took that little ewe lamb from David said, surely that man must die. And then Nathan, with a lot of guts, because this could have cost him his life, said, and you are that man. Now, in Egypt, in Greece, in Assyria, if somebody came in and said, you have done this, you deserve to die to the king, you know what the king's response would be? First of all, you're going to die. Second of all, I'm the king, I make the law, I didn't violate the law because I'm now getting rid of that law retroactively. That was the way kings operated. But what is David's response? Against you, Lord, only you have I sinned. He repents. David repents. Every other king in the area would have said, I have done nothing wrong. I will do what I want. I am king. David says, I was wrong. I repent against the Lord only have I sinned. That is why David is elevated above other kings. Are you following me? Does that make sense? Okay, now, all that being said, when I read through those stories, I got a little upset. David does this thing with Bathsheba, has Uriah killed, but then all of David's family and the entire nation of Israel pays the price for his crime. I mean, there's civil war. People are dying. And then, when he does the census, the entire nation of Israel pays the price again. I remember sitting there reading, I go, that's not fair. Let a disease run throughout Israel because of David's script. Give David the disease. See how he likes it. Civil war? Fine. Don't be a civil war. Make it a coup and make David on the run on his own. Let him pay the price on his own. It's not fair. Folks, if you take nothing away from my preaching at all, understand this. When it comes to your relationship with God, you don't want fair. If we get fair, we go to hell. Because one sin is all it takes to send you to hell. We don't want fair. We want unfair as much as we can get it. This whole thing of somebody representing a group we don't like. Because especially as Americans, we like to think of ourselves as independent Independent islands, if we screw up, that's none of your business. Stay, stick your nose in your own business. But is that life? If the President of the United States screws up, is he the only one who pays the price? No, the entire nation pays the price. You can argue the entire world pays the price. If our economy goes into the toilet because of something stupid that our representatives do, who pays the price? We do. If this afternoon I decide, you know what, sitting around, watching movies, eating pizza, I've been there, done that. I'm going to try that meth thing. Give that a whirl. And I go do that, and I get busted, 
And it's on the front page of the paper. Do I have the right? Pastor Rawlings, do you have a quote for the paper? Yeah, it's none of your business. It's between me and the law. Is that true? No, it's not true. Who have I hurt? I've hurt all of you, my parents, my wife, everyone. Your sin is never just about you. Never. So when you read in the Bible that someone represents you, that's common sense. That's just the way it is. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Why aren't we living in Eden right now? Because our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam and Eve, grandmother, they screwed up. And don't blame it on Eve, guys. I know, I know, I know enough. Well, she was the one who ate the fruit. So did Adam. Yeah, but she did it first. But if you read the text closely enough, he was standing right there. As a man, you know what he should have done when that snake was sitting there talking? Done. Paradise. If only Adam had been a redneck. Rednecks know how to do that, right? But it's the way it is. The Bible says that. Here's the deal. When everything is said and done, when judgment day arrives, and we stand before the Lord, we are either represented by Adam and his sin or by Jesus and his righteousness. So that whole representation thing, somebody else representing us, actually cuts in our favor. You choose. Do you want to be represented by the sin of Adam or the righteousness of Christ? Because that's what Paul says in Romans. In Romans 5, he says, Jesus is the new Adam. He has overturned all of that. So that what Jesus Christ did, he lived a sinless life. He is tortured and he is killed as a penalty for the sins of anyone who places their faith in him. And then on top of that, he lived a sinless life, not just to be a perfect sacrifice, but to turn around and give his life to his believers and say, you will be judged by my life, not your own, and not by the sin of Adam. Is that not a good deal? And you don't earn that. It's a gift. It's a gift. You see... This whole representation thing, it's everywhere all the time. We do it all the time, unfortunately. When we do it, it's unjust. When God does it, it's just. For example, you judge someone by their parents. Well, you know, I'm not sure you should run around with that kid. You know, he did, his father did such and such. And da, 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 da. Now, that's an unjust, because God says, that's my job to judge, not yours. In the ancient Near East, especially in Israel, there were three offices that were anointed. Anointing meant that it was the representation of the Holy Spirit. You had the king, the ged, prince, really. 
His role was to represent the people as a whole in political and military affairs. You had the priest. His job was to represent the people in religious affairs to God. You had the prophets. The prophets were to represent God to the people. They're the ones who spoke for God to the people. Now, this is important because here after we get done, we, next week we jump into Paul's letter uh, to the Galatians. Once we're through with all of that, then we're going to jump into the prophets. And you need to understand something about the prophets. We have this idea in our in a Western culture that a prophet is somebody who goes, and tells the future. In the Bible, that's not what a prophet is. Read through the prophets. It's not easy reading, but the prophets, 90% of what the prophets say are this. What, God? Okay. Israel, get your act together. We have this contract. You obey the law. You worship God only. He blesses you. Other nations see it. They come to worship him. That's the deal. Get your act together. That's why Nathan could march up to, to David and say, you have sinned, you deserve to die, because he was representing God, not himself. So you need to understand that. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to representation. Now, I'm not saying people can't have some kind of, God can't whisper some kind of miraculous thing into their ear and all that kind of stuff. I'll tell you this story about dad, but don't repeat it. You can keep this between us, right? Right? Okay. I, I, I'm looking to see who didn't say right, so when somebody rats to him, I know who to call. My brother Brian told me this story. He said Brian was probably 12, 13 years old, and one of his buddies gave him a cigarette. So he took the cigarette, and he rode his bike out into the middle of the woods somewhere, smoked the cigarette, went home. No one was there. Walks in, takes his clothes off, puts them in the washer, gets in the shower, showers for like a half an hour, gets out, puts some new clothes on, goes upstairs, sitting at the dinner table. Dad's sitting there. Dad looks at him and says, how was that cigarette, Brian? <laughs> Brian was like, are you serious? <laughs> now, you can tell in the second half of the story. The second half of the story is this. Dad said, okay, I'll tell you what. You want to smoke? I grew up on a tobacco farm. My dad let me smoke, but... Here's the deal. And he went upstairs, and somebody somewhere had given him one of those Winston Churchill cigars. About yay big. He said, sit down. You smoke that entire thing, and you can smoke. I said, how'd that go, Dad? He said, the little jerk smoked the whole thing and asked for a second. Um, <laughs> so not quite a prophet, but anyway. Um, okay, here's how I'm going to end. David was a good king once you place him in contexts of other kings at the time. But if you'll remember when I started this series, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that in John 5, Jesus says that all scriptures point to me. Now, when Jesus said that, there is no New Testament. It hasn't been written yet. The New Testament is not written until Jesus has already has died, resurrected. It's not written yet. So when Jesus says... All Scripture points to me. He's talking about what? Old Testament. The Old Testament. Very good. I knew you had it. He's talking about the Old Testament. So how does the Old Testament point to Jesus? Whenever you read through the Old Testament, you have to ask yourself, how does this point to Jesus Christ? Here is how 
David, being a good king, points to Jesus Christ. David was a good king, but Jesus is the better king. There's a reason why Jesus refers to himself as Lord, Lord. It means king, king. We don't worship Jesus our buddy. We don't pray to Jesus our friend. We don't pray to little Jesus, meek and mild. We pray to the king of the entire universe. It's his. Everything belongs to him. All of us are renting. It belongs to him. And he is the better king. For example, let's go back to that census story. David commits a sin by conducting the census. And he says, for my punishment, place me into the hands of God, for he is merciful. But Jesus Christ never sinned and said, put me in the hands of men so that they may know the mercy of God. The very people he created tortured and killed him. And what are his words? Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. He is a good king. A good king. The perfect king. And he's coming back to establish a perfect kingdom. And some of us bristle at that, thinking that one day we will be slaves, like David said, and there will be a king who's absolute ruler. But you have to remember, he is a perfect king. He is a good king. He died for you. He forgives you. The Bible says he even prays for you. He is a perfect king. And we need a perfect king. And he will establish that kingdom one day. I don't know when it will happen. It could happen in three seconds. It could happen in 3,000 years. I don't know. And nobody on the radio or TV knows either whether they, whether they say something. I don't care. And here's the thing about knowing that one day we will have a perfect king and a perfect kingdom. A perfect future can give you power to get through an imperfect now. A perfect future can give you power to get through an imperfect now. If you focus on it. God does not promise anybody, I'm going to hit more on this next week, God does not promise anyone an easy life. Anywhere. Did Jesus have an easy life? The Apostle Paul have an easy life? Peter have an easy life? No. He has not promised you an easy life. He promises you a perfect, eternal one, one day. And we need to focus on that. When your boss comes in and says, I'm sorry, your position here is no longer secure, focus on that perfect future. When the doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, it's cancer, focus on that perfect future. When you get a phone call and says, I'm sorry, we've arrested your child. He's in lockup for DUI or for drugs. Focus on that perfect future. When someone you love and trust leaves you 
and says, I no longer love you, I don't want to be with you, you focus on that perfect future. You push through an imperfect now by focusing on a perfect future. Does that make sense? It's the only thing that's going to get you through, to know that we have a perfect king ruling over a perfect kingdom one day. And in grace upon grace, not only do you get that, all the loved ones you've ever known or loved and lost who had their faith in Jesus Christ will be there as well. And then, in grace upon grace upon grace, Jesus says, it's in Isaiah, it's all through the Gospels, he says, and when, after I'm done judging, and I draw my people all together, we're going to party! He says, the Isaiah says, there will be wine and steak. Vegetarians, repent. <laughs> That's what's waiting for us. And that can give us power today because today you will have trouble. Tomorrow you may have trouble. But there will be a day when trouble is cast away forever. Now, next week, um, next week, true to form, I'm going to tick some of you off. I don't mean to, even though I'm a lawyer, I actually take no, I find no joy in doing that whatsoever, I promise you. Next week, we dig into Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, Galatians is a letter unlike any other of Paul's letters. If you read through Philippians or Ephesians and so forth, Paul is like, bless are you, praise you, I hear what you're doing, and I'm so happy, and all this other kind of stuff. Not in Galatians. In Galatians, Paul is mad. And he says, you are following a false gospel. There is one gospel, there is no other gospel. But when you poll today, when you poll Christians and ask them, what's the gospel? Only one in ten can give you a biblical answer. And that's partly because we define what we want the good news to be ourselves, or we go look for somebody on the radio and TV that sounds really good. Paul calls that itching ears or tingling ears, looking for what you want to hear. So next week, we're going to talk about some of the false teachings out there and how they compare with Scripture. Now, I'm going to put up quotes from some people. I'm not going to call them names. I'm not going to be nasty. I promise. I'm just going to say, here's what they've said. Here's what the Bible says. And before you think I'm being nasty, read Galatians 1. Because I'm not going to get nearly as nasty as Paul does. Because one of the things that's going on in Galatians is they're saying, you have to be circumcised before you can become a Christian. You have to become Jewish before you become a Christian. Paul says, oh, they want to cut? Tell them to keep cutting. You're like, whoa, Paul. Daggone. That's Holy Scripture, guys. Because they want to cut on him, and let them tell them to keep cutting on themselves. Whoa, man. Now, I'm not going that far. But that's where we're going next week, just so you know. All right, I'm done. Let's pray and beat the Baptist to the restaurants. One, two, let's go. Heavenly Father, thank you so much 
for being our king, for being a perfect king. That you gave us the life of David just to show a shadow of what a good and perfect king could be. That it points to you that while David was a good king, he was not a perfect king. You are a perfect king. And you will bring a perfect kingdom. You will be our representative at Judgment Day. We will be your servants for all eternity. And it will be a blessed eternity that we thank you for. And may we live in gratitude for that salvation and that eternity every single day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. God goes with you. See you guys. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.